For about eight months, we've been listening to one voice tell the story of Jesus, to give an account for his life. And though we read it as literature in a certain way, we also read it with a certain question. And that is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Because that's the point, right? It's not about simply listening to him, hearing from him, trying to understand it, trying to rejoice, whatever that might mean. But what does it mean to follow him? And what we took as a challenge the very first Sunday we began listening to the Gospel of Mark, we took a challenge from a voice that's a true story. His name is Franz Jägerstadter. And he was a simple Austrian farmer right around the time that World War II was breaking out. And he had been conscripted into the German army. And by virtue of that reality, he was called upon to make an oath to Hitler, and he would not. But he realized that that would cost him the more he continued with that conviction. And he himself was a follower of Jesus and was having to grapple with what it meant to follow him when he knew it would cost him. And here in this scene that we saw from the very beginning of our series in Mark, he is standing in a chapel talking to an old seasoned painter who paints images in churches. And in this moment, Franz Jägerstadter says nothing, but only listens to this painter himself grapple with what does it mean to follow the true Christ. Listen. Pews and dream. They look up and they imagine that if they lived back in Christ's time, they wouldn't have done what the others did. They would have murdered those whom they now adore. I paint all this suffering, but I don't suffer myself. Make a living of it. What we do is just create sympathy. We create, we create admirers. Don't create followers. Christ's life is a demand. You don't want to be reminded of it. So we don't have to see what happens to the truth. Darker time is coming. And men will be more clever. 
I won't fight the truth. So just ignore it. I paint their comfortable Christ with a halo over his head. How can I show what I haven't lived? Someday I might have the courage to venture, not yet. Someday I'll... I'll paint the true Christ. You hear in him a lament about a way of responding to Jesus that in some ways has a certain affection for it, but it, it misses the mark. He would say that Christ's life is a demand, a demand to follow even when it costs you. But I would like to argue this morning that the demand that Jesus makes of us in following him is this demand, to rejoice. And some of you who aren't familiar with us might inwardly chuckle, <laughs> right? Rejoice. Do you know the life I'm living? Have you seen the year I've had? Let me be clear, when I say that his demand is to rejoice, it is not like, come on, get happy. It is not toughen up. It is to take certain things that are true of every human life, whether they believe in God or not, and setting them alongside an empty tomb. And somehow in doing that, something emerges that looks like joy, that is richer and deeper and even through tears. This morning we're going to listen just to the last eight verses of Mark's account of the life of Jesus. And in so doing, we're going to hear hints of what it means to follow, of what it means to rejoice in him. Let's find out. We're in Mark chapter 16. We'll start in verse 1. I wonder if you could stand just to hear and focus your mind. Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. 
And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may sit. First witnesses, three brave women, where the 11 disciples are, only they and the Lord know. They are off hiding somewhere. And these women have come to that tomb in love to anoint his body, simply to be near it, to be present to it. They have come to this tomb in love, and obviously they can't come to that tomb unless they come with their grief. And I think in that little obvious detail, there is an analogy for us. There is a metaphor for us. What is a grief? A grief is a dream or a desire that's been denied you. Something that you counted on, something that you held to, something that you look forward to, and then in a instant it's gone and you are left with this gaping hole for which you don't know what to do and in that moment is your grief and if in the last two years that does not describe your experience in any way you should get on your knees today for no other reason than you are in a unique minority but whether on this day or even in the last two years you know fully well what it means to feel less. You know what loss feels like in whatever shape or form it took. You know this feeling, maybe you don't have a word for it, it's a word been supplied us. You know this word languishing. All of these things that might have been that weren't. And now you know something about grief in your own unique story. Friends, what does it mean to follow the true Jesus and to rejoice in him? It is to take those griefs whatever they might be, of whatever form they take, and set them alongside an empty tomb. Not to pretend that they aren't real, not to pretend that they don't hurt, but to think for just a moment that they might be more than just grief. To feel them, to realize them, but to see them in a wider gaze and in a wider context. Jesus was a man of sorrows, The prophet says he was a man acquainted with grief. He knew a thing or two about whatever it is you're experiencing right now. There was a composer of the last century named Sir Edward Elgar. I think I played some of his arrangements in band. Some of you might have sung some of his compositions. One day, there was a vocalist, a young vocalist, who was a rising star as a singer And she had learned one of his pieces, and they invited Elgar to come to this auditorium to hear this rising star sing one of his compositions. And so he came and sat, and in an empty auditorium, she stepped to the stage, she steps up, and she sings with absolute virtuosity. Pure, unadulterated, beautiful, pristine technique. She nails it. She walks from the stage. And those who were at Elgar's elbow said, what did you think? And he said, without being dismissive, he said, it was beautiful. Someday she will be great. 
when something happens to her that breaks her heart, something will be great in her. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. And therefore, whatever your griefs are, when you come to him with them, you will not be met with a blank stare. You will be met with a knowing gaze and a kind of welcome that no one else can offer. Francis Spufford, he's a British author. He put the notion of Jesus' suffering in these words. He says, The resurrection promises, bizarrely enough, that love is stronger than death, but it doesn't promise that death is imaginary, that death is avoidable, that death is temporary. To have death this once be reversed is to let us feel the depth of our ordinary loss in it, not to pretend it away. Some people ask nowadays, what kind of religion is it that chooses an instrument of torture for its symbol, as if the cross on churches must represent some kind of endorsement? The answer is this, one that takes the existence of suffering seriously. What is following the true Jesus? What is trying to rejoice in all things? It is to take your griefs and lay them aside an empty tomb. His name was John Ames. He was a Congregationalist minister in Iowa. His story is told in a novel called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, and he lost a wife and child in childbirth. And in a much older age, he is married again to a younger woman who asked him to marry her. And now they have a very young son. And on the day that he baptizes that child who is his, he remembers what he lost in his wife and his child from a decade or more ago. And he realized this. Even in the greatest misfortune, the greatest misfortune isn't only misfortune. Why? Because of what good had come from that and because of there was an empty tomb. You rejoice in him when you set your griefs alongside the tomb. What else? The closest thing to comedy in this whole um, bizarre moment in chapter 16, the, the woman show, first day of the week, they're ready to anoint his body. Um, they're wondering, so how are we going to get in? I'm not strong enough. Are you strong enough? Do you have a rope? I have no rope. And they show up and the stone's rolled away and inside there's this illuminated figure lit up like a Christmas tree. See what I did there? And in the moment, it says, Mark says, they were alarmed, <laughs> right? And the first words out of this figure's mouth, illuminated like that is, don't be alarmed, right? Don't be, I'm alarmed. I'm here. We thought we would find his body. The body is gone. The stone is open. And here you are, like an LED light, telling us not to be alarmed. Sure, fine. And then what is comes out of that figure's mouth again. So, he's not here. Go tell his disciples, and it's just as he said. And what does it say the women do? They run from the tomb screaming, bewildered, confused. What? Risen? Impossible. And what else does it say? And they told nothing to no one. Oh, we're getting to a great start here. Don't be alarmed, and go tell everybody. And they, for, they forget it. It's comedy. We're meant to laugh. We can laugh from this vantage point. In the moment, they're not laughing. 
But the only thing that rivals the comedy of that moment is the poignancy of it. And it, it comes down to two words. They, they, the, the figure tells them, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Wait. And Peter? Did he turn in his membership card? Why? <laughs> Why is he in some sort of separate category? I thought he was one of them, right? What happened? Why, Why say that? Does the angelic figure tell them in order to to shame Peter? Because look, if you don't know anything about Peter, you probably know this. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, you know what Peter does. The word there is that he denied him. What that really feels like is that in that moment, Peter disowned Jesus. I don't have a clue who you're talking about, lady, when somebody asks him, aren't you with him? What? No. Mistaken identity. In that moment, the one that he had followed for so long, he treats like a stranger. Why then does this figure tell them to go tell Peter? Don't forget to tell Peter. Why? To shame him? No. Peter was already doing enough of that himself. In that moment, the figure was trying to tell them to tell him, how shall you be met with your disowning Jesus? The reminder of his welcome. A heart of welcome with a view to restoring you to his side. Friends, every single sin is a failure of nerve. It's a failure of heart. It's a refusal to believe in that moment that God is good or that he is trustworthy. Every single sin you and I have ever committed was in that moment as if to disown Jesus in the moment. Never heard of him. He's got no claim on me. And in that moment, we, as Peter, in that moment, wonders, what do you do with your failures? And in this moment, of this we can be sure. To follow the true Christ, to rejoice in him, is to bring your failures, your failures, the ones that you will admit and the ones that you are terrified ever to voice. You set those alongside an empty tomb. Because in him and his death and resurrection, there is proof of this truth. At the end of your failures, there is the offer and the provision of forgiveness. It doesn't mean you don't own what you've done. It doesn't mean you don't try to grapple with what you've done for the harm that you've done. Because before there is joy, it's preceded by remorse. And Peter certainly felt it. And that is the pathway to restoration. You own it, but you aren't held enslaved to it. That's how you rejoice. That's how you follow the true Jesus, is to let your failures and your griefs and lay them right there alongside an empty tomb. There's a third thing you bring that perhaps should be the most obvious. There's a a pretty helpful Twitter handle that every single day it kicks out one tweet and it's this tweet. You will die someday. <laughs> you, should, you should follow like every single day. There is no alteration. It's just you will die someday. How helpful. 
It is, though. Um, you and I, instinctually, naturally, adaptively, have learned to compartmentalize that idea. It's over here in a box, and maybe we open it a little bit when we go to funerals. Maybe we open a little more if we get sick. But most of our life, we pretend that's not true. Or we obsess about it so much that all it does is create in us a fear and despair that makes us, well, we don't live anymore. You bring your griefs alongside an empty tomb. You bring your failures alongside an empty tomb. But you also have to bring your thoughts of death alongside an empty tomb. Do you ever think about how much time you have wasted? Do you ever consider how rarely you think of what you have as a gift to be received and to be good stewards of? Kids, if you saw the Stranger Things trailer over the weekend, you heard Steve Perry. Steve who? Steve Perry. But there's a song by Steve Perry that says, Only the young can say, we're free to fly away. Sharing the same desire, burning like wildfire. When you're young, you don't think of your death. And you know what? You shouldn't. You don't have to all the time. And if you do every time, let me talk. Let's talk. But there is a way to be mindful of that truth without being obsessed about that truth. And that is by bringing those thoughts alongside an empty tomb. Look, it's Easter, and I'm the pastor, and you're all here, and you're a captive audience, and here's the point at which I, I'm, I'm supposed to trot out all the reasons that it's believable that Jesus, in fact, was risen from the dead, the how unlikely it would have been for the first eyewitnesses in that account to have been women, because women in that day, their testimony wasn't even accepted as legitimate. Or I could tell you, well, you know, it's so bizarre that anybody would think of a Jewish religion of God becoming flesh that never happened. That's not a way to gain followers if you tell that part of the story. I could come up with any number of reasons why I would say to you, look, if, you, if, if he doesn't rise from the dead, you've got to come up with a better reason to explain the existence of the church. I'm not going to do that because I don't need to because I can't prove it to you. But sometimes the voices that have the most resonance and credibility are those that can no longer compartmentalize the gay, the, di- the, the, the comment, someday you will die. Tim Keller was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer two years ago. And it's not better. In an interview he gave this week, he made this point. I do think that the great thing about cancer is that Easter does mean a whole whole lot more because I look at Easter and I say, because of this, I can face anything. In the past, I thought of Easter as a kind of optimistic, upbeat way of thinking about life. And now I see that Easter is a universal solvent. It can eat through any fear. Any anger and despair, I see it as more powerful than I did ever before. Uh, Pascal said, I I listen to the witnesses who get their throats slit. We listen to the witnesses who no longer can compartmentalize those silly little tweets into some sort of unvisited place, closet in their brain. We rejoice, we follow him by laying laying alongside an empty tomb the thoughts of death, which leads us to one last thing we do. Because how you think about your dying has everything to do with how you think of your living. And there in the last verse, it it ends sort of abruptly, right? Uh, The last words 
in the account of Mark's gospel we have is the woman running around and it says, for they were afraid. That's it. There's nothing left. If you have a, of a hard copy Bible in front of you, you, you might see other, three other endings that are in brackets. And that's because, you know, centuries along the way, those other endings kind of got inserted into the end of the text that we have, kind of the way Matthew and Luke and John all bring some sort of resolution to Jesus' story. But they all are in brackets because there is very little chance that Mark wrote any of those endings. It just ends right there, for they were afraid. Wow great ending. And scholars have debated ever since Mark wrote it. Did he intend that or was there a fire and the copy got burned and we've, we lost the ending? Whether it was intentional or whether it was accidental, the, 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 intended, the effect is the same. What are you going to do with this story? There's no resolution. How will you resolve it? What will you do with it? Well, I filed away, wonderful story, wish projection, Freud was right, I have no part in that. Isn't it great the way people just sort of come up with stories to tell themselves in order to feel okay about in life? Or maybe there's something more there. And I think it has to do with how we live. When Paul says... In Colossians chapter 3, he says this, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with him in glory. The women in that moment, they run terrified, saying nothing to no one, and that's true at first. And the 11 others, not much better. In fact, Thomas is pretty defiant, saying, unless I see him, unless I touch the wounds, I will never believe. And we get that. But in that moment, they weren't going to say anything. But in time, they're open, they're courageous, and their joy became audible. And they didn't care who heard what they said. They didn't care what they said or what they told others that they had seen. In fact, in that moment, they didn't care if they ever were seen. They just knew what they had seen. Kids, you might do a little thought experiment at some point. The extent to which your life is online, it's quite possible that the more your life is online, the more you just kind of want to be seen. Not just share stuff, and that's cool, but the more you want to be seen is in some ways an effort to want to matter, to want to be affirmed, to want to be loved. And you know what? That totally makes sense. It's not evil. It's not weird. We all want to be seen. We all want to know that we matter. And it's not just something that you do in a young way. All of us are guilty of it. But what if I were to tell you that there was a kind of life in which you did not have to follow that impulse where you were always so desperate to be seen and known and matter? What if I was to tell you that there was a way of living in which, to borrow a phrase from a film you might soon see, that you would be willing to do what is right, not 
simply what is easy. Because the more that you try to live a life in which you're out to be seen and affirmed, the more tempted you will be to only do that which will be easy. Franz Egerstadter had that same challenge. He was arrested because he would not pledge an oath to Hitler. And on several moments in the film, you see people interrogating him, one of whom who asks him the question, do you expect to change the course of things? Do you think the authorities are aware of you, that your protest will come to their attention, that anyone will know of it? Do you think anyone will ever hear you? Meaning, do you think doing whatever you think is right will ever have the slightest consequence? And to him, those questions didn't matter because he knew who would see his obedience. He knew who would see what was doing the right thing rather than the easy thing. He knew it was the Lord who would see him because he knew his life was hidden in Christ, in the Lord, such that whatever he might do, it would be seen. Friends, to have your life hidden in Christ is to have a kind of security that is not to be compared with any other security. Even if the rest of your life is insecure, even if every single thing is an open question that is full of anxiety, one thing cannot be taken from you, that you are his if your faith is in him, that you belong to him, that your sins are forgiven, and that you have an inheritance that will not fade. That is secure. Because your life is hidden with him. And therefore, that's where you find the strength to do what is right rather than to do what is easy. And even if you die for it, as unlikely as that might be in our stories, this is true if the tomb is empty. Your tomb, even if it is never visited by another person, is not forgotten and it will not be perpetually occupied. And that's why the very last phrase in that film, A Hidden Life, is from the author George Eliot, who said this. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. If you believe his tomb is empty, then with his help, you might believe that your tomb will be empty also one day. And in that there is joy, even if it's a fight to hold on to it, even if it's something that has to be restored to us each deep week we gather. This is what Easter is about. This is why we rest. Let's pray. Father, whatever we need to know that this, in fact, might be true and beautiful, we ask you to confirm to us that it is good. We ask your help and we ask for hope. We ask for the world that we might learn to live and breathe and have strength to face what we do 
and to do what is merciful and just and humble in all circumstances, even if it should cost us. Turn these words into hope with the help of your spirit that it might be not just our story, but our song. We ask in the name of Jesus, whose tomb is empty. Amen.